if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke 10. That's going to be the helpful passage for us today as we work through the parables of Jesus in conjunction with the book that we're giving out. So if you don't have a Bible or you don't have the book we're giving out, then before you leave, go ahead and grab one or both. The book is called Gentle and Lowly. It is the heart of Christ for sinners and for sufferers. And we're finding out in week three of this quick little series we're jumping in is that the parables are also great messages to sinners and sufferers as we learn the shape of the kingdom, who Christ is, the gospel. And today we're going to be looking at the question that is posed in Luke 10, what does it take to go to heaven? Which is a big question, right? Now, I didn't even start asking that question until I realized how hellish it was here on earth. When you're a little kid, you're just riding your bike around and news is the thing that your parents watched, right? Then you're not really thinking about eternal life as, as much. But then the news starts to kind of inform you of the, the, the landscape of this world and that it is a little bit of a nightmare. It's kind of hellish. And I remember, vividly remember being a little kid uh, sleeping on the top bunk of my bunk bed. My brother was, he's about three years younger than me. He was sleeping soundly underneath me. And I had a solid, heavy understanding that there will be an end to my life. And I, it never really hit me before. I just, I knew that I knew that I was going to die someday. And I was scared. And I remember just crying and bawling and, and not knowing how, how, to, how to really categorize that. What, what, what was it that I was really grieving? What was I really feeling? I was just a kid. But I knew that was the time where I started wondering, what, what does it take to not die? What does it take to have this thing called eternal life? What does it take to go to heaven? And that is what Christ is going to speak to today, which is a big question. So just to kind of maybe package some context around this parable, because it has some heavy context, we're just going to start reading the passage right before it. So Luke 10, 25, we're going to jump right in. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It'll be up on the screen. And it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now pause right there. This is a lawyer. This would have been one of the foremost experts in Jewish law code. They would have known more than the average person. They're not in the middle of the bell curve by any means. And so he's like, how do you read it? And it's debatable here, depending on what scholar you listen to, whether this guy, this lawyer, is testing Jesus just to be a turd, or if he's testing him because he's trying to see, is this guy really legitimate? Is he really the real thing? It's kind of unclear. We're not really sure. Because technically, we all live forever, and the lawyer would have known that. But that's not really the question the lawyer is asking right now either. What he's asking and what he wants to know is what does it take to live forever where God is a father and not a judge? What does it take to have a vibrant life that grows in our satisfaction, that grows in our joy with no disappointing end? That's what he wants to know. And this question is not uncommon. And let me just say this, it's not uncommon even with Christians. Even with Christians. For years, I wondered if I was really saved. I would be in torment, wringing my hands, wondering whether or not I really, really had eternal life. Did I pray the right thing? Did I use the right words? Was I, was I in the right mood? I believed, did I believe enough? Always unclear 
always a little bit nervous. Maybe this is some of you. Or maybe you live life with somebody that struggles with this. If you're wringing your hands over whether or not you have eternal life, I want you to consider your conscience a little bit as you work through that. Some of us have a hypersensitive conscience that just won't allow us to rest unless we have irrefutable proof that we have eternal life. And even if you had irrefutable proof, you still might not be able to calm down. You still wouldn't be sure. The reason you're twisted in knots over that is because you see sin in your life. And you're wondering how how it can still compute. How can I still have sin in my life and have eternal life at the same time, right? Your sin nature kind of condemns you, so you don't have peace. You don't have any kind of resonating steadiness to you. I will say this. Unbelievers typically don't find themselves tormented over their salvation, right? Maybe that'd be a little bit of encouragement to some of you who are sensitive and Christians. Unbelievers typically are not wrestling over their sin nature. I certainly wasn't before I got saved. Before Jesus rescued my soul, I didn't really wrestle over how much lust was in my life, how much pride was in my life. I didn't really care, right? I didn't like my life, but I wasn't making repeated trips to the altar, nor was I picking up a Bible, nor was I crying out to God, nor was I trying to wear the door out to the local church. I did not care. If you're truly wanting to be a Christian because you truly trust in the work of Jesus, truly, that's only going to be because God has ruined your heart for it, right? That's the only way you can get from A to B is that God ruins you. But if the gospel, this radical story of how God rescues a broken creation through the life, death, and life of Jesus Christ as he gives his spirit to his people, if that story makes you yawn and you don't resist evil at all, you don't resist sin at all, you have no eye towards it, do you have eternal life? I'll ask you. I'll ask you. I can't know for sure. But I know having eternal life in the person of Jesus given to us, that's a gift that changes us over time, right? Even if the change is slow, even if the change is slow, even if we wrestle with doubt, if God has ruined you for him, you will not be able to shake eternal life loose. I think this is important for us, right? We, we just got out of a partnership class where we kind of zoomed in and focused on what it means to be a missionary, what it means to be missional, what it means to be on mission with others. And one of the things that we discussed is that sometimes being a missionary also means stepping into and walking alongside those who have sensitive consciences, who aren't really even sure. I mean, they love Jesus and they have faith in the gospel and yet they're like, I don't know, but really, am I? Maybe I should pray again. Sometimes, sometimes it is preaching the gospel to them that God is steady and God is sure and he does not drop what he picks up. Sometimes that's good, decent evangelism as we gospel each other. I just, I wonder how personal this question was for the lawyer, right? He's a smart guy, smart guy. I wonder how personal it was. Was he tormented? Because listen, this is also a question, what does it take to get eternal life? This is also a question the world is asking, maybe in different words, but this is what the world asks. Because we can't help but to reach out and search for and hunt down a vibrant life with no disappointing end. We all want eternal life. Everybody does. 
right? We look for long life that will not disappoint us. We look for paradise with no punctuation on the end of it. It's why humanity is so easily addicted to things. It's why we get addicted to things like pornography. We get addicted to things like a substance. We get addicted to things like gaming because there is inside of it, inside of it, at least a slight promise that your satisfaction will grow over time. That there won't be a disappointing end. If you continually devote yourself to it, give yourself to it, that you will find vibrancy with no disappointing end. But it never really works, does it? It never really works. We quickly find ourselves not satisfied, but with a level of shame. It's kind of like when an arrow is shot from a bow or a bullet is shot from a gun. It starts off with such firm trajectory and such speed and such power just to fade over time until it lags and then drops to the ground. There is disappointment in the end. But we are all on a quest to gain the most satisfaction and the least amount of disappointment. We are all on a quest to be rid of shame and boredom and pain. What we want is eternal life and a vibrant eternal life. And so Jesus sees it in this lawyer. And so the guy that's asking him a question, the script is flipped, and then Jesus starts asking him questions, right? That's what we're going to see through this. He's really good at this. And he says, what do you think? What do you think the answer is? What do you think it is to get eternal life? What does it take to go to heaven? You tell me. You're the expert. Pretty smart guy. Went to the university. What do you think? And this is what he says. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will have eternal life. Correct, Jesus says. Right, you got the answer. In fact, Jesus would actually answer the same question with the same answer a couple other times. But very likely in answering this question, as it was probably coming out of his mouth, he realizes he can't. He can't love God with every fiber of his being all the time. Definitely can't love his neighbor like himself. He can't do it. And he knew it. It's impossible. No one follows that perfectly. We all know it. Jesus knows it. Jesus knows that we know it. Sounds like a consistent love. It sounds like a holistic love. And we can't do it. It's impossible to love God with every fiber at every moment. When have you ever done that? When have you ever loved God with all of your mind? All of it. All of your strength. When have you done that? I mean, portions? Sure. For moments? Yeah. But not like this. Not like the answer he just gave. Nothing like that. I mean, I've heard a scholar say this when it comes about sin and how partial we are in our devotion. Right? I've heard it said, and I couldn't quote who said this exactly. It's been a long time. But if sin was the color yellow then everything we do, everything we think, will have a shade or a tinge of yellowishness in it. Everything would. We'd be in a yellow world doing yellow things, even in our best moments. Even our best moments are haunted, haunted by some level of ingrained pride or sin that we can't even see. We can't even see. And this is hard for us, right? This sounds off, just even as I say it out loud. It's hard to believe because we see some of our actions and our thoughts as being so noble and pure. It's easy to do that. When we love our kids a certain way, when we do something selflessly for someone that doesn't deserve it, we feel so noble in the moment, we feel so saturated by the gospel in the moment that it's hard to see that we have any sin in the moment at all. But it's important to remember that sin is not a sickness that we pick up and put down. It is a systemic thing that we carry from birth to grave. 
right? We say it all the time. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Sin will infect our best of endeavors. There's always a shade of yellow somewhere around us. But it's also equally impossible to love our fellow person just like we love ourselves. Again, we can love the right people in the right times. Sure. We might even be able to love the wrong people for a short amount of time. But to love a criminal, to love someone who doesn't deserve it all the time, can't do it. Can't do it. There's limits, right? Even our kids will find a limit. Even our spouse will find a limit. Don't believe me? Look at the divorce rate. Something found a limit. To give your life for the right person all the time to the wrong person for the wrong time, that's impossible for us. And here's the thing. We bump into passages like this in the Bible occasionally where there's a description of what it takes to be God's person. God's man, God's woman, to have eternal life. We catch these moments, and they're interesting, because if we're honest, we'd say we would aspire to be that person, but it's impossible at the same time, right? Psalm 15 is a good example of that. O Lord, the psalmist says, who shall sojourn in your tent? That means who will live in proximity to you? Who will have your attention? Who will be with you? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then it lists this kind of person, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. I'm out. I don't know about you. I'm already out. I'm already out. I'm already kicked out of this club. Then he goes on. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised? As he goes on and on, the pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller, right? I just look at this and I think, that's not me. Not all the time, not all the time, if I'm being honest. Is this what it takes to have eternal life? Is this what it takes? Because I want to, I aspire to, but I fail. What does it take to have eternal life? Because if it's this, I'm done. I stand zero chance. Psalm 15, it only describes one person who's ever lived. The lawyer's answer only describes one person who has ever lived, and that is Christ, and that is the point. That's the point. Psalm 15 is not about how you can improve your life to look a certain way. It's painting a portrait of who Christ is, right? I mean, when we talk about salvation, I think the church went through a little bit of a weird, awkward stage. Church capital C, globally, where we tried to lower the bar as much as we could to make it easy, easy for people to become a Christian. The bar is high. The bar is awfully high. To love God with every fiber of your being, to have all of these pure aspects as we see in Psalm 15, it's a high standard. So what the lawyer does here is the same thing you do, and it's the same thing I do, and we get Jesus to choke down on the requirements to the level that we can achieve them. We try to get him to reduce the bar a little bit so we can step over it. It's us justifying ourselves. We want to self-justify. In fact, that's what the very next sentence says. He says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor then? That's a technical nerd question. I don't know that he really wants an answer. He just wants a lower bar. He just wants a lower bar. The lawyer realized that the only way he could possibly fulfill the law's demand is to reduce the law's demand, to limit it. If I could just get the bar a little bit lower, then I can step 
over it. It sounds stupid to negotiate eternal life with Jesus right here, to make the bar as low as possible, but we do it all the time. We're always looking to self-justify to a certain extent, even if it's small. Remember, there's a tinge of yellow in everything that we do, right? Even if it's small, I'll pick on the sinner's prayer for a moment. The sinner's prayer. Some of you grew up understanding what that is. That's totally foreign to some of you. If that's a new phrase, the sinner's prayer is something that we would call over the years where somebody would pray a prayer to accept Jesus into um, their heart and that would be the moment, the starting point for their Christian life. This magical prayer that defined whether you were going to burn in eternity away from God or whether you were going to experience joy in heaven. It was all defined by that prayer, sinner's prayer. Listen, I know people that have prayed that prayer so many times because of a fear of doing it wrong, just like we started off with, right? I had a friend years ago that I led to Jesus, loved God, and then one day, a year later, he's like, listen, Luke, I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I, I think maybe I need to pray again. I was like, well, what do you mean when you say you need to pray again? Like, you pray anytime you want. He's like, I know, but for God to save me, I feel like I need to pray that again. I was like, listen, you don't need that. I'll do it with you anyway. Just, just so you can maybe sleep well tonight, but you don't need that. So I prayed with him again. Very next year, same thing. Next year, same thing. What are we doing if we're not self-justifying? If I could just get the words right, if I could get the format right, do it with the right person, mean it enough, be in the right mood, have a Bible in a hand, have a Bible in this hand, have the right Bible, read from the right scripture, it's self-justification. Where, where a prayer is unlocking eternal life. It's one reason we don't do it after every service here. I'm thankful for praying to God at salvation. And we were talking about this in the class a little bit today. I think those are the most awkward prayers when people are thanking God for their salvation because they don't really know what to say. They have no Christianese yet, right? So they're, they're saying a lot of stuff. And listen, if you're a seminary professor, you'd be like, nope, 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 nope. That's not, they're not the right words. You're not using the right terminology. And it doesn't matter. It's awkward and it's beautiful. All they know is they're responding to something that God has already done in their life. I don't really care what the words are that they're using. You can see God changing them right there. I love those prayers. But the work was already done or else they wouldn't be praying. Their heart's been changed right there in that moment maybe, but their heart has been changed, which is why they're trying to do the best they can to put broken words and broken sentences besides something that Jesus is doing through his spirit. It's really cool. But I think the better response from the lawyer when Jesus says, I don't know, what do you think? What do you think it takes to have eternal life? Probably would have been more accurate for the lawyer to say, well, I know what the law says, and I know I can't do it. I think we both know that, Jesus. I think you know it. I know it. You know that I know it. I know that you know it. Without you doing something to balance this equation, I'm doomed. I'm ruined. Help me or I'm dead. Instead, he wants to redefine the demands of the law so that he could succeed. Oh, yeah? Jesus? Well, then who is my neighbor? Let's get specific. Let's get specific. Let's see exactly what my neighbor is so that I know what I'm dealing with, so I know what I can achieve or try to achieve in order to get this thing called 
eternal life so that I could justify myself. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to justify himself. And so Jesus gives him this parable. That's where the parable is coming from. That's why we have this parable. And he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, pause for a moment. None of that was unexpected. The, the Jewish listeners would have been nodding their head in total agreement and understanding at this point. They just would have, right? It's a, it's a dangerous 18-mile stretch of road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was known for bandits, known for guys that just come out of the rocks and beat you and take your Jordans, leave you for dead, right? No one would know where you were at, half dead, whatever, This happened all the time. We don't know why these two religious experts, experts allegedly in kindness, swerved around this Jewish guy. It's unclear. He's not giving us very much. Um, It could be because they thought it was a trap. It could be because he was ritually unclean, because he's bleeding all over the place, I suppose. Could have been that they were in a hurry. Unclear. One thing we know is they weren't having it. One thing we know is that they were unable to love their neighbor as themselves. Just came out of the lawyer's mouth. And they can't do it. These experts and the law. That we know. And this is where the hook comes in. You'll remember from the last two weeks, we've talked about good parables have a hook where there's a pivot in an unexpected moment where things happen differently than we thought. And that is always going to be where the principle of the parable is buried. It's inside of the hook. The hook here is the next sentence. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went and took him, or he went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Which of these three, he says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say Samaritan right there. Interesting, right? He just says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Neighbor, it's not very complicated in the Greek. It just means one who is near. It just means what we think it means. But the Jews, when they heard this, they think neighbor means another Jew, not a Samaritan. Samaritans aren't neighbors, they're enemies, ferocious enemies at that. That's one thing we know. I think knowing how much of an enemy the Samaritans and the Jews were will actually help you decode other books in the Bible, like the book of Acts. You'll see the Holy Spirit of God doing something really cool, strange, but cool with the Jews. And then he bounces over and does something very similar with the Samaritans. And if you're new to the Bible, it leaves you with like, well, why couldn't he just do it all at the same time? Like with everybody. I mean, I'm not going to tell God what to do, but it just seems kind of weird that he's doing things the way that he's doing things. If you understand who a Samaritan was in the eyes of a Jew and who Jews were in the eyes of a Samaritan, it starts to make sense. You see, Samaritans, if you don't know what they are, they had some Jewish blood in them, but not as much. Not as much. They were emblems of compromise, emblems and logos of pollution to the Jewish eye. 700 years before Jesus, 
A nation called Assyria came and plundered the northern kingdom. At this time, Israel was actually two kingdoms, a northern Israel and a southern Judah, okay? That's about as complicated as I'm going to get with you. There were just two kingdoms, two kings, and Assyria came and plundered the northern kingdom, carried them off, but they didn't carry everybody off. They left the weak, the diseased, the old, the marginalized, they left them just to run some things. They left the undesirables to keep everything running. And then what they did is they brought in other Gentiles, non-Jews, they brought in other Gentiles to come in and they colonized the place. So they scrubbed it of all of its culture and then they brought different cultures in, bringing pagan gods, they intermarried, and it literally made it to where it was no longer a pure-blooded Jewish nation anymore, right? Very different. Hundred years after they were carried off, the southern kingdom, Judah, fell. Not to Assyria. Assyria had already run its course, but Babylon came and grabbed them and carried them off too. But something different happened. They were allowed to go back after 70 years, right? Some of those Jews were actually a part of the original kingdom, carted off to exile, and then got to go back. And when they went back, they went back to rebuild Jerusalem. That's, by the way, that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are in your Old Testament. When you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's the description of them rebuilding the city, the temple, the walls. That's what's happening right there. But they were pure blood Jews. They had not compromised. They did not intermarry. And if they did, they stayed back in Babylon. So you have this disparity between a people that shared a bloodline, right? And there was this bitter wall that, that, that started to separate the two of them. They hated each other. They didn't just hate each other. They prayed against each other. They pray, Jewish people were praying that the Samaritans would never find salvation. This was part of their prayer language. They just wouldn't put their guns down. Bitterness. For 600 years, that's more than twice the age of our country. That's a long-running bitterness. That's a big wall. And again, even that, even with what I just told you, should help you understand passages like Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman by the well. If you read that, the disciples walk up on that scene and they were wondering why he was talking to her. It's not because it was a woman. It's because it was a Samaritan woman. He was breaking breaking some rules there. And that's our hook. It would be a Samaritan that would come near the broken Jewish man. It would be the Samaritan that would neighbor well, right? That was unexpected for the listening audience. It's not unexpected for you because you've heard it a million times, right? They were upset at this point. Your average listener would have had a hard time with this story because their bitter enemy was full of mercy. Their bitter enemy was merciful because the Samaritan was different. He was going to greatly inconvenience himself for someone who was an enemy and saw them as an enemy. The Samaritan risked being ambushed by coming close where the other guys would not. The Samaritan invested his own resources, his own time where the others were not going to do it. The Samaritan actually contracted ritual uncleanness where the others would avoid that contamination. He is the opposite. That's the whole point of the parable. But let's not lose the real question that brought the parable on. That's easy to do because I've heard this taught as a model for mercy ministry or racial reconciliation. That's how this is typically taught with the punchline, now go and do likewise. And I think those are great applications here. Those are good applications, but that's not the point. Remember what the lawyer was asking. He wanted eternal life. That's what 
That's what brought this whole thing on. And what does Jesus give him? He gives him this parable about a merciful heart. What does that have to do with eternal life? I'll tell you, eternal life comes when we give up self-justification. Eternal life comes when we abandon rule-following in order to get God's pleasure. And we know that we have eternal life when we start to see it shape our very lives. I mean, had Jesus said, it's a good question, what does it take to get eternal life? I'm glad you asked that. Here are 32 rules. I just scribbled them down this morning. I find that there are pretty good 32 rules. You follow these, you'll have eternal life. You know what the lawyer would have thought? Same thing we would think. Great, I can do this without you. I can do it without you. But that's not what he does. He says, I got a story for you. You got to live like that. You got to walk in the shape of me. The lawyer can't say anymore, I can do this without you. Now all he can say is, I can't do this at all, unless you. I can't do this without you. In eternal life, it does inform how we live in this disappointing one here. Only someone who has received this kind of mercy can give this kind of mercy. This is not an average Samaritan, right? Not all Samaritans were like this. This was a transformed one. Only when you've been totally loved can you really love somebody else. I mean, let's just face it. You can't love your spouse like you want. You can't love your kids like you really want unless you're able to enjoy Jesus loving you like he wants. You can't. You can't forgive others unless you've embraced the truth of being forgiven. You'll be unable to do it. Unable. You can't love if you see yourself as unlovable. You can't forgive if you see yourself as unforgivable. Think about it. Can't invest in others unless you can enjoy and see the truth in God's investment in you. You have to receive before you can give. That's the beauty of the gospel. You see, what Paul's going to do later on is he's going to speak to a church about what generosity looks like. He's going to speak to the Corinthian church. It's a young church, smaller than this one. And he's going to refer to the Macedonian church, which is a unique church. And as he talks to them about giving of finances, because that's squarely what he's addressing with the Corinthian church, is them being honorable to a vow that they made to give something. He says this, For you know, Corinthian church, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He had just got done describing the Macedonian church, who was begging begging, pleading to give beyond their means. He said, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Take their joy, take their poverty, mix it together, and they're a generous church. That's what he's saying right here. They did not beg to impoverish themselves for, for, the, for the wealthy increase of others because it was the right thing to do. They didn't do that. Because they took joy in a God who impoverished himself to free them from being enslaved to money. Money was no longer a secular item for them to hoard and depend upon and be enslaved to, but it's an instrument of worship for them. They understood in their generosity that treasure and wealth isn't even here. And this place is not their home. And they cannot lose the wealth that was given to them. See, the lawyer in the Corinthian and this is probably why Paul was speaking in this way, the lawyer that would have been inside the Corinthian mind would have said, okay, well, technically, how much am I supposed to give? 
technically. I mean, let's really get down to it. How low is the bar? What does it take for me to write a check for to get the bar low enough to where you are no longer mad at me and I am approved in your eyes? If you just tell me, is it 10? Is it 15? 20? Let me know what I'm playing with right now. That's just self-justification. And Paul wouldn't even deal with it. It's the same thing when Peter said, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Seven? What's he looking to do? Set a bar so he can step over it and self-justify, which is why Jesus teaches him about forgiveness. Listen, if this is you, and you're not able to give, forgive, love, invest, if you're not able to do that, you are not free. I'll say it in a different way. You've not metabolized the gospel yet, digested it, not gotten your arms around it yet. It's not real to you yet. We give as a Christian people sacrificially, generously, joyously. We give mercy. We give grace. We give love, especially to people that don't deserve it because that's what God has done for us. It is from the love of God that we're able to do these things. We can only be merciful when we have truly understood the mercy of God for us. But if you find yourself refusing mercy to others, refusing grace to others, it's a sign of nothing more complicated than the fact that you don't understand what has been given to you. You don't understand what's been given to you by mercy and by grace. The gospel's not real yet. Some of us, we read this, and when we understand what a Samaritan really is, we can never see ourselves doing what the Samaritan did, loving a neighbor as himself. And it's nothing more than a misappropriation of the gospel because it's not real. It's just a story that Luke talks about on Sunday. It's a word. It's a code for salvation. But it's not really making a Samaritan out of us. right? To love and neighbor well is to be loved and neighbored well. That's where it starts. You cannot give what you have not received. You simply can't do it. And we are to some degree in this parable, right? I mean, it, we're, we're, now, we're, we're not the Samaritan. We're not the Levite or the priest. We're the roadkill in this. That would be where we're at to some degree. This parable is not about the gospel, but we see some heavy gospel elements in there that I think are worth looking at. We're the roadkill. And then yet one that we hated comes close to us to neighbor us even better than the Samaritan did. Jesus, who is despised, shows himself to be humanity's uber neighbor, the ones who come close, come close to people who are not like him, people who weren't asking for him even. And he gave more than just resources and time. He gave his own life. Right? And the medicine he gives, the wine he gives us, the remedy he gives us, it's not just to get better, it's to live forever. It's eternal life a life of vibrancy with no disappointing end. And when he finds you and me broken and mocked and abandoned and shamed, he doesn't look down on you and me and say, well, listen, it's tough for you, but the bar is still right here. You've got some work to do. I mean, if you really want mercy, there's some work for you to do. You're going to need to look a certain way. You're going to need to get your head on a swivel. You're going to need to dump a few things and pick up a few things you're going to have to be better. You're going to have to be different. We don't see this. The gospel says he comes to us as roadkill, as a broken person, and he carries us. He picks us up and carries us to a safe spot. You see, the cross is many things, but the cross is 
definitely where our self-justification goes to die. We lay it down if we want eternal life. This is what Paul says to the Roman church regarding how God finds you and me on the side of the road. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, that's how he finds us. The cross is where we carry our justification of ourself and we say, I am ruined unless you justify me. I'm ruined unless you do it. I cannot ascend your holy hill. I cannot sojourn in your tent. I can't check all the boxes. I can't love with every fiber in every moment. I cannot love my neighbor like myself. I cannot do these things. I'm ruined without you. If we're unable to truly digest this truth and let it reshape us in every department, we'll never be able to neighbor well, give mercy well, be freed from slavery to money, be free from slavery to pride. I mean, even as a local church, our missional output is only going to be as real as our gospel input. Our communal output is only going to be as authentic as our gospel input. Getting this has to precede giving it. It has to come before. But why is that so hard for us? I mean, why can't we just allow ourselves to be loved well? Why is it so hard for you and me just to let God love us? To just let him forgive us, to let him just give us mercy, to really get our arms around it and enjoy it. It's what we mean when we say to enjoy Jesus. That's part of our mission statement. We exist as a people to enjoy Jesus. That's how it starts off. That's what it means. Why can't we just enjoy Jesus? Why are we just looking for rules, looking for bars to step over? It's simply because we have an allergy to aspects of the gospel. We're allergic to some of it, right? I mean, some of us are lawyers in the room or with the lawyer mindset. We see ourselves a little too big and our sins a little too little, right? Sin is not systemic. It's manageable. Something that we could pick up and put down, just depending on what frame of mind we're in. And then some of us are like the Samaritan woman. We see ourselves too little and our sins too big. And we say to ourselves, Jesus cannot rescue this mess. He can't touch me. He can't even bear to come close to me. And I think... Jack Miller has this great quote. He speaks to both of those mindsets, and he tells you and me, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Both are wrong. Both the lawyer and the Samaritan woman are wrong. We're worse than we ever imagined, far worse. There's yellow in everything we do, and yet we're more loved and beloved than we ever could hope or dream. That is the gospel. We're smaller than we could ever imagine, and we're more adored than we could ever hope. I think we're allergic to that, to letting God change us, to love us, because it just feels so right to justify. It feels so right to just give me some rules. Give me a way to improve. Give me a way to show myself as worthy of something like salvation. I think as missionaries, as, as we are a church of missionaries on mission to the city, it's important for you to know that when you talk to a lawyer in, in our terms today and a Samaritan woman in our terms today, they're struggling with the same thing. It's easy to make a villain out of the lawyer and easy to make a victim out of the Samaritan woman where they are both trying to justify themselves. One just wants to perform to be cleaner. The other one wants to perform to be more impressive, but they are both looking for salvation and eternal life without Christ, without Christ. 
Listen, this is a big reason we take communion every week, and we will this week too. It's a reminder of how deeply we've been loved. It's we carry our shabby selves, and we sit before, and we carry our self-justification and our best attempts or our inability to make an attempt. We carry it all, our baggage, our works, our pride, our failures, and we drop them at the foot of the cross, and we take those elements and remember of what he has done for us, how he has cleaned us how he has made a way, how he is giving us mercy, how he has given us grace, how he has invested his treasures, how he was on mission to us, how he has adored us, loved us, been patient with us, kept his promises to us. That's what communion is for. It's why we got to do it every week. I have to take communion for the same reason. I have to be reminded. It's a reminder of how deeply we've been loved. You can't escape the imagery of broken body and spilt blood. You can't. You can't wiggle out from underneath it. And we live out of this communion with God, not for it. We are on mission and behave and perform and live this life out of the reality that the communion represents, not so that we can get it. In every gathering, as a leadership team, we want to lead you to the place of receiving love and mercy and grace and friendship. It's the most important thing about you, is embracing it, what God has given you, so that you stand any chance of extending it to others. Because he does end this. He ends the parable with go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and live a life transformed by the gospel, mindful of how you've been loved. To go and do likewise. Now, we don't really know what happens to this lawyer. I hate that part of this parable. I always like nice resolutions. I want to bow on every detail. Not getting it here. A lot of other parables, you're not going to get it either. We don't know what happened to this lawyer. Did he change? Did he go and do likewise? Don't know. Don't know. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, and he's describing the lawyer, right? Maybe not specifically, but that type of heart. And in verse 42, he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Right? This passage freaks a ton of people out. It does. As a new Christian, just admit it. If you're a new Christian, you probably read that and thought, oh, okay, new questions. Is that me? Am I in there somehow? I could be in there. Never really know, right? I mean, a lot of people, they struggle with something like this. I know the right things. I do the right things. That's exactly what the lawyer would have said. I know the right things. I do the right things. We're freaked out because we think we might be in this little description. We ask, what does it take to get eternal life then? If that's what it takes, if some of these people didn't get eternal life and they're doing the right things and they're saying the right things, then where is the disconnect? And the answer is eternal life is found when we abandon self-justification. Leave it. Carry it to the cross and put the baggage down. And just embrace our heroic neighbor who comes near to broken people who didn't ask for it, who didn't deserve it, who treated him like an enemy, and at his great cost. In our great health and benefit, we receive eternal life. And then we are shaped by that very gospel to go and do the exact same thing. That's how we know. And listen, if you're watching online, 
or you're here and you would say that you were probably far from God, maybe some of this parable is new to you, maybe the idea of this gospel I've described is new to you or different, there is a requirement for eternal life. We caught this. The lawyer was right. Jesus said as much. Correct. You have to love God with every fiber of your being in every moment, and it has to be reflected in how you love your neighbor. That's true. That's a real requirement. He wasn't messing around. He wasn't messing around. None of us in here can do that. But God is going to require us to either trust in the one who could do it or stand in judgment as one who just did their best. God gives his righteousness and swaps it with the unrighteousness of those who are tinted with yellow in everything that they do. And when we show ourselves before the Lord, he is going to measure us on whether we are buried and hidden in the person of Christ who could do all of this, who did love his father with every fiber and every moment, who did love his neighbor as himself, or we're left to just defend ourselves on our own resume and our own record. But the lawyer was right. And as we take communion today, because we need to get out of this part of the service, I'm just going to usher you to do the same thing that Jesus ushered this man. Go and do likewise. And I would just put something on top of that. Go and do likewise and do it in remembrance of him. Do it from the truth of what he has done, not so that you get something that he could do. You are free to spend your life on others because the better neighbor has come close to you. You're free. You're free to spend your treasures because your treasures aren't even here. You're free to forgive people, and that's a big deal because some of you struggle with forgiveness. You're free to forgive because you've been forgiven. You're free to give mercy to total jerks that don't deserve it because he was merciful to you. You're free to give favor to people that don't deserve it. Grace, because grace was given to you. You're free to love people who don't deserve it because you were loved when you didn't deserve it. You cannot lose anything. You're free. You're absolutely free to exhaust your life for the roadkill of the world. You're free. There is a freedom in the gospel to fail, a freedom in the gospel to succeed. 